Hey everyone, Editor Sam here. Just wanted to let you all know that there is a act of sexual coercion in the story that Jack and I discuss in the episode. So if you would like to avoid that, you can find the timestamps in the episode description. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to Every Hugo Ever, the podcast documenting, discussing, and deciding the very best of the winners of the illustrious Hugo Awards. My name is Samuel Johnson, alongside with my co-host as always, Jack Alexander. That would be me. Hello, Sam. How the hell are you doing, man? I am doing quite well, Jack. We are on our second episode. We made it to number two. Who would have thought? You know, I always believed in us. I always believed that we could have not one, not two, but perhaps even three or more episodes of this very fine podcast. Technically, the first episode was episode zero, so we're not to number three just yet. But hopefully... Well, actually, technically, the first episode was the uh, first of our secret bonus content pre-episode episodes. And this is, like, actually our sixth episode or something. Yes, but some secrets must remain so, for now at least. Anyway, today we'll be moving to the turn of the millennium. We are going to the 2000 Hugo Awards, discussing Michael Swanwick's Scarzo with Tyrannosaur, which is so different from the last story, which is Portal Guide. And I think that's what makes this show really fun, by displaying the difference between all of the stories that have won across the years so excited to get to that but before jack how you doing what have you been up to i appreciate you checking in with me sam i'm doing very well we're actually delayed this podcast a bit because i was a little under the weather folks i was a little sick sick as a dog but luckily i've recovered i've drawn my strength from the sun and the earth and the moon and i have come back stronger, faster than ever. But most recently, checking in with, I watched a movie last night, hanging out with my best friend, my mom, watching a movie, it's called Pygmalion, adaptation of a play by George Bernard Shaw, which is itself, of course, an adaptation of the Pygmalion section of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Pygmalion, great movie, if you like problematic romantic comedies because it's all about a guy who's like man this gutter snipe in uh london this woman who's got a cockney accent she's selling flowers she's very poor i'm gonna train her in elocution until she can pass herself off as a lady and we're gonna go to a fancy fancy uh ball and of course they fall in love after he bullies her for like six months about her language learning. So How romantic. It's very romantic in a sense. Yeah, you know. It's 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 good dialogue. It's very funny. Whether or not I hmm. I did not find the romance persuasive, but I'm I'm one of those sort of old fashioned gentlemen in terms of romance where I don't like I like it when the male lead isn't kind of a huge piece of piece of piece of dirt. You know, I like it when men are good. But uh, I know that's a pretty rare, rare take these days. You're a fan of positive masculinity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what they say, opposites attract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that is very much our dichotomy here on the show. 
So, Sam, let me check in with you. What the hell have you been up to recently? Um, not too much this week. I've been streaming a lot of Star Wars Jedi Survivor, the new Sekiro-esque third-person action game from Respawn. It's cool. It's um a big step up from the first game, and the scale of AAA gaming production is wild these days, but... Also, so many technical issues. Hmm. And Lilith, the developer of the PSX adaptation of Bloodborne, made a very good joke on Twitter, which was talking about how, you know, these 100, 200, 300 gaming dev teams are making these incredibly glitchy, unoptimized messes. And indie developers of one to three people make these like gorgeous games in a much less time that are usually coming out pretty clean. So. Uh, who knows? I don't know where AAA gaming is going and if it'll crash one day or not, but it certainly needs to figure out some kinks. Do you enjoy playing the game, though? Oh, yeah, is sorry. It, I should say, good? the game... Sorry, yes, the game is great. Minus Does the, it make you feel like a Jedi? Minus the uh, frame rate issues I have. Yeah, I mean, people... Uh, I've enjoyed streaming it and people have enjoyed watching it. Dual-wielding lightsabers will always be fun. Pal still don't really know, feel much for him as a character. Love his little droid buddy a lot more, but unlocking all of the hair and beard styles lets you make him look like a completely different person from how he acts, which I think is a cool, or at least very funny, addition. But outside of movies and games... I'm kind of surprised they like give you a defined... like You're going to play as this specific character in the Star Wars universe instead of letting you do like a create-your-own. Because I feel like... Most people would want to play, like, their own weird alien guy, like a Twi'lek or a Bothan or... I don't know. That Those are the two I remember. I was going to say, I'm pretty impressed Mon you knew Calamari. even... I'm surprised you knew even that many Star Wars aliens. I would not have picked you as that kind of guy. Rodian. I know the Rodians. Yeah, that was Greedo. Mon Calamari. Twi'lek. Rodian. You said Rodian already. Wookiees. Ewoks. Yeah, why why is why don't you play as an Ewok Jedi? Well, if you want to do character creation, I mean, go back to the old Bioware games. Knights of the Old Republic is basically the answer. They wanted to have you know like a defined yeah. character, and I guess and all that. But outside of movies and games, you and I are both big readers. What have you been reading recently? I was reflecting, right? I was like, what do I need in my life? What do I want in my life? And of course, my answer that I came to my mind immediately, I said to myself. I need Moorcock. So I started reading Michael Moorcock's Elric series, of course. Okay. Famous sword and sorcery. I was wondering where you were going with this. You're chuckling? What's 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 so funny? It's he's a, he's a very renowned, I mean, very renowned uh, fantasy author. I don't know why you're you're chuckling about. Isn't he the guy who invented like chaos as it would eventually be displayed in Warhammer? So that's actually Elric. Elric's universe is defined by constant warfare between the gods of law and the gods of chaos. And they're not really good or evil. They are, they are order and disorder. And actually Elric, the protagonist, he serves one of the gods of chaos. And it's actually really funny because it's like, it's definitely a riff on Conan. Cause Elric, he's like, he's obviously like a traveling warrior who kills people and like sleeps with beautiful women, but is just kind of sad about it all the time. But, like, instead of Conan, who's, like, a strong, virile barbarian, he's, like, a skinny, albino elf prince boy. 
his powers and skill all comes from his magic sword, and without it, he's just, like, powerless and useless. And he's, like, constantly praying to his evil gods to intervene and, like, do things for him. Mm. I've read two of the... I have the, the, the collection, I think it's called Sealer of Swords, and I've read the first two stories so far. And it is... So far, it is pretty good. It's very, very pulpy, but I'm enjoying them so far, and I, I suspect they'll kind of get more complex as it goes on, because I know these are early stories in Moorcock's career. Okay, yes, he was the one who originated the eight-pointed Star of Chaos. Oh, that's interesting. I believe that. Which I guess is public domain, because that is all over Warhammer. Yeah. I mean, D&D stole the, like, OD&D stole the cosmic conflict between law and chaos just straight from Warcock. Like, because in the original D&D, there's no good or evil, it's just law and chaos, and that's it. Mm. Eh, He's an anarchist, too. That makes sense. Yeah, well, the introduction to the book was written by Alan Moore, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, my favorite warlock. Speaking of cosmic law and chaos, what have you been reading recently, Sam? Yes, yeah, so while you're reading about the gods, I've been reading about the god. I am in a book club, and another member of the book club who's may or may not be a co-host of this show suggested for this month we should be reading the book of job specifically the translation by robert alter so i have been reading that i am not particularly Sam, a fan of organ look me in the eye and tell me that that poetry is not an absolute banger that that you're tell look at me in the eye and tell me that the job poet does not knock it out of the park with like every dang verse I'm not a fan of organized religion, mostly, but the text itself, there's some good stuff in there. What I like the most about this is actually the footnotes. Each page in this book is about 70% footnotes. You'll get maybe three or four lines from the actual book, and then all of Alter's footnotes explaining like the text and the meanings, breaking down like some of the hebrew and how they can be translated in different ways earlier this year i read the essay 19 ways of looking at wong way discussing various translations of an old chinese poem and it's been cool to see some of that reflected back in this as well although that poem was four lines long job is much longer i've been learning a lot about translation this year and it's been pretty good and all i can say is that Listeners, I need you to know, you deserve better friends than Job. We all do. I thought you were going to say they deserve better friends than me for making you read the book of Job. But, folks, we're not here to talk about books that are a thousand years old. We're here to talk about books that are less than a thousand years old. In fact, today we're talking about a book that's less than 20 years old. Actually, it's over 20 years old, I lied. It's more 20 years old. Shut up, Sam. You know, 2000 was like, what, 15 years ago? Okay. But, Sam, can you give our audience a little bit of background on the Year's Hugo Awards? Where did it take place? So the 2000 Worldcon, Worldcon 2000, was in the Windy City, Chicago. And amongst the other winners, the best novel winner was A Deepness in the Sky by Vernor Vinge. The best novella was The Winds of Marble Arc by Connie Willis. Uh, In Asimov Science Fiction, 
And best novelette was 10 to the power of 16 to 1 by James Patrick Kelly, also in Asimov's. Connie Willis, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about her work on this. I'm assuming we'll talk about her work. I know she's won the Hugo for longer fiction. I don't... Other longer fiction, I should say. I don't know if she's won it for short stories. I'm just assuming she okay. has, but I'm, I suspect she'll come up again. But we're not talking about these long fiction folks. We don't, we don't care about that for today. We're looking at the short stories. And let me tell you, we have a lot of ones that lost. Four stories lost out, despite being, I'm sure, very strong contenders. You got Ancient Engines, which was also by Michael Swanwick. We got Hothouse Flowers by Mike Resnick. Both those are published in Asimov's. We got Max by Terry Bisson, published in Fantasy and Science Fiction. And Sarajevo by Nick DiCario, also in Fantasy Science Fiction. It's interesting. I think we're seeing here, like, how dominant a lot of those old magazines were, specifically Asimov's, which yep. definitely, I think, is pushing that sort of um, hard science fiction focus and, I guess, the sort of temperament of this sort of thing, which I think we're... And it's interesting just seeing, like, comparing that to 2019, where I think we saw it was kind of dominated by uh, Uncanny and other of those more modern magazines. Because Asimov still publishes, but it seems like it's kind of lost the prestige it once had. Maybe that's just a you and me thing because we're young. When I was putting together the Excel sheet with all of the winners from the last 70 years, it was fascinating to see the ebb and flow of different publications. There's a period where it's almost entirely just all of the winners are coming from Asimov. And then really right around 2000 is when you begin to see, sometimes in the 90s too, but you begin to see that kind of wane. And I imagine like online, online only websites are the ones that start to get a lot of stories. And then the transition from print media to online sources is, I'm sure, a complicated task for a lot of these publishers. But that is podcast for another day. Jack, why don't you elaborate on the history of Mr. Swanwick? So Swanwick is a, I was going to call him an old hand, but that's kind of by our standards. He started publishing science fiction in the 1980s, uh, 1981, no, 1980, I'm sorry. And he's basically been consistently publishing ever since. He's still working to this day. I'm assuming he's full-time, still a full-time writer, so good for him there. He's published a lot of short stories and a lot of novels. Uh, in fact, he's won a series of Hugo, Hugos, Nebulas, as well as World Fantasy Awards for his uh, short stories and his novels. I was just looking at his, even just his Wikipedia page. 1999, 2000, 2002, 2003, 2004. For basically six years, he was winning the Hugo every single year. The dude is a machine, cranks out these stories, and I'm assuming they're all going to be of this high quality. The thing I want to note, though, two things. One great quote from him. He has this great article called How to Win a Hugo. Uh, and he says, quote, I found if you place three stories in the ballot, your win is pretty much assured, which shows you how kind of prolific it is. Because we saw, right, he's he's literally competing against himself. Yeah. And in a ranked choice vote, uh, it's a pretty good, pretty good chance of winning. The last thing I want to note about this particular story, he shares it with Tyrannosaur, is that it got expanded by uh, Swanwick into a full-length novel called The Bones of the Earth, taking the same concept of going beyond and expanding on it, which that full-length novel would also go on to win the Hugo in 2003, which is pretty impressive and 
Maybe that's way to good. That's a good way to win a Hugo is take your Hugo winning story and make it longer, and then win another Hugo for the same thing. I saw his name crop up on the list many times, so this is not going to be the last time he appears on this podcast by a long shot. I just want to note where we are uh, reading this. We're reading this in Michael Swanwick's uh, "The Best of Michael Swanwick," a collection published by Subterranean Press which we got the Kindle version of, and there's a ton of stories in there, and it's got, you got 500 good pages. It's a pretty hard cover, I'm sure, if you get the physical copy. So definitely, if he's a prolific enough author to have a, the best yeah. of published of his stuff, you know he's got to be pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So this will not be the last time we see Mr. Swanwick, and this will not be the last time you see us, because we will be right back after this break to discuss the story. Hello and welcome back to Every Hugo Ever. Today we are discussing the 2000 winner, Scarzo with Tyrannosaur by Michael Swanwick, which is a time travel story first and foremost. Jack, feel free to chip in with any information I may miss or get wrong, but where this story opens up is a charity gala, a bunch of rich people attending a charity event in the far past, millions and millions of years ago in the Crustaceous period, while dinosaurs still roam the earth. And our point of view character is a man who runs this whole show. We'll call him the manager because we don't actually get his name. He describes the process of managing both the waitstaff, the cooks, all of the people at their tables, but also making sure that the dinosaurs outside the protective structure are going around and doing things to really get the crowd excited, while also giving some exposition about how time travel works in this world and explaining to us that there are these time cops, basically, who are there to ensure that anyone on the staff who may be messing around with time travel for their advantage is stopped such as to use the classic Back to the Future example, which is actually sort of referenced in the story, waiters going back in time to give their younger self uh, some stock or sports betting advice in order to win big. So he works alongside this agency to stop that from happening. Via the help of basically breaking the rules, his older self from the future giving him heads up on what's going to happen. The evening's going well, there's a young boy at one of the tables who's really into dinosaurs, and the manager, who used to be a paleontologist back in his day, is having a lot of fun seeing the enthusiasm in this child in seeing the dinosaurs, including an old T-Rex that the team has named Satan, which I think is a great name for a dinosaur, just putting that out there. At some point in the night, one of the waiters says that there is a guest in particular, a woman who is hitting on him that's making him feel a bit uncomfortable, and the manager just waves him away and says, all right, write down a report and we'll talk about this later, which is also when we find out that the manager feels a bit bad for this waiter because his future self told him that this waiter is going to be eaten by Satan in an accident the next morning. Later in the night, the woman who was into the waiter was told to come to a certain room where the manager is there, and I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Basically, the manager pretends to be the waiter and has sex with this woman, her thinking that this is the waiter. We'll dig into that. 
The next morning, as we were told, the waiter's eaten by Satan, but the waiter leaves behind a report that reveals some incredible information. First is that he is the young boy that was so enthralled at the gala the night before, and because of the wackiness of time travel, this event is what inspired him to become a paleontologist and work on this base later in his life after he had this momentous occasion with the manager. What we also realize is that this meant that the young boy, who was the child of the woman at the table, the waiter, he's a waiter, right? No, he's a paleontologist. He's not a waiter. I was going to correct you at the end, but he is. Well, you can actually correct yourself at one point, but no, he's not a waiter. He's a paleontologist who's just sitting and chatting with them. So the paleontologist, whose name is Hawkins, which is something I should have mentioned earlier, is revealed to be the boy at the table, which means his mother is the person who was hitting on Hawkins last night. And Hawkins, understandably, wanted to get out of that situation. But this also means, as the manager realizes, that the intercourse that happened last night was also how Hawkins was conceived, and the manager realizes that his son was unknowingly working alongside him the whole time and also just died around three hours ago. So upon this realization, the manager decides, okay, I've broken the rules a few times before. I need to go and fix the past so I can save Hawkins' life only for his older self to show up. That's not quite right, Sam. He doesn't intend to save Hawkins' life. He intends to destroy the organization, stranding everyone else in the past and preventing Hawkins from having ever been conceived. So not only would Hawkins not be killed, he would have not been killed because he would have never been born in the first place. Well, I guess you could call that saving somebody's life, but I'm not sure I would. We're getting into some real, like, ethical arguments with that. Mm -hmm. But what happens, Jack, when he, after the manager decides this is the path he's going to do? Oh, who shows up? But the old man. And actually, this is the moment where we have the reveal. It's at this very moment that we have the reveal that his boss, the old man, is actually his future self. Who comes back and says, hey. You can't do this. You said, he says, don't take this kid's 24 years of life away from him. And he gives him a memo that says, hey, this is the memo that, that you sent back to your past self telling you about Hawkins' death. So the manager now, our protagonist, has these two memos sitting in front of him and has to decide which one to send back. Whether to send back the one that's going to basically wipe out the timeline as we know it or the one that's going to preserve it. And he makes a decision but we don't know what it is. And that's how the story ends. Yes, and for anyone else who may have lost track of events during all that, I don't blame you. Welcome to time travel stories. Rarely are they a single straightforward line. Yeah, I, I will say, I think this story is a bit, it's a bit more straightforward than it is explaining it because of how the scenes work. Yeah. Because it just opens with basically the manager at the gala with the kid, chatting with the kid and Hawkins in the background. And then it just adds on the complexity afterwards. It's We see in there, there in the past that so we know the time travel is happening, but it really doesn't get into the mechanics of time travel and how it really starts affecting people's actions and thoughts until later on. And like a lot of the reveals happen significantly later, so it's less of a... Honestly, when I was reading the story, 
it made perfect sense to me. And then looking back, it just became more and more confusing in hindsight. Yes. It's very brief. I mean, it's a short story, but it flows so well together that everything makes sense as you're reading it. And it's only talking about it, especially to someone who may not know what's exactly is the content, that the pieces don't always fall perfectly in place. What was your initial reaction to it? Because I think you're a bit more hot on this story than I am. I read this like at work in my break room, and I had this big smile on my face. I loved it. I thought it was a really fascinating exploration of time travel and an exploration of also how this wonderful new technology, these new developments get kind of subsumed and taken over by capitalism. Because really the whole story takes place at a gala where it's just all about sucking up to these rich donor folks. And it makes time travel almost the least interesting version of itself. Yep. I smiled really, really hard at the reveal that the researcher was his uptime son. And I just like gut wrenching. And I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, Michael, you really hurt me. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. There's one thing I wanted to note, which was that the realization that Hawkins is going to die happens during the sex scene. We'll talk. I think we should talk about the scene in detail later on. It'll be a direct conversation about what is really just a a rape. And I don't want to hide it, but I don't want to like make people read that. But there's that interesting reveal of Hawkins' reveal happens during that scene. So it was one of those things that's like, I thought it was a really strong story. And I really appreciated it. I didn't sort of emotionally affect to it as much as I did with the previous one. But I thought it was almost more of a science fiction ideas story than certainly the previous one was. What did you think, Sam? Yeah, for me, it was when I think of science fiction short stories, this is what I think of. Like these short but impactful stories with incredibly interesting settings you're thrown into where things are a little weird, a little strange, but it tells such human things and has that, like, I swear, short stories more than anything else love to do really tragic twists all the time that is what i feel so many short stories especially in science fiction are hooked on i think the reason for that is that short stories like this they really aim for they want to hit you with an emotion right Mm -hmm. they want you to have some sort of punch that sticks with you and that can be humor that can be joy but i think sadness is just a classic one to go for and i think this one definitely is like almost mean in that way and i really respect it for that i didn't even honestly think about the time travel that much it feels like such a non-factor in this other than as a plot device to allow events to happen as they did we don't even see like as you were saying how the time machine works or what it looks like or anything like that we never even see it in action because it's all kind of just like mentioned in passing it's just referred to as a as a tunnel like as a tunnel that they go through like yeah like it's definitely some sort of like portal they walk through the tunnel and they're at a different time yeah that's all we get what i liked about this most was actually at the very beginning because i think it's important that it came out in 2000 we're still riding that wave of post-jurassic park kids are super into dinosaurs and i don't know about you but I was a dinosaur kid growing up. I had a lot of books scattered all over the place right around this time, 2000. 
could tell you about all three eras, Triassic, Jurassic, Crustaceous, and the dinosaurs that were in each one. And I would be just like that kid when Satan the T-Rex comes up and he smashes his um, self into the protective glass and everyone else is a little panicked, but it's all part of the show. That's why the manager lets it happen. The kid, Philippe, who will become Hawkins, runs right up to the glass. He wants to see it in everything in detail because this is his thing. And this is the moment that is going to be the foundation for the rest of his life. Love that bit. Love just seeing a kid discover what he's into. And then he gets killed by Satan. Yeah, he made a deal with the devil. I love the ending with the choice and that we'll never know what the answer is because that leads into my favorite thing, which is discussing with other people like what they thought about the ending and where the choice were. But I don't know. It just didn't hit me in the same way as I think it did you. There was just something, there was just something about it. Maybe I think the sexual assault scene, I think the tastelessness of the sex scene just left a really bad taste in my mouth that I wasn't really able to get out. Time travel stories are so iffy with me i find like i go back and forth on them just because like every time travel story is gonna have like a different set of rules and i need those rules to be followed or else it feels like nothing really matters and yada 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 this was just okay i enjoyed reading it but didn't necessarily thrill me twist was okay but i like dinosaurs all right so let's start diving into some questions some notes actually before we get the questions i i just want to highlight because you said right this story doesn't actually care about how time travel works. No. Which I love. Because I think a lot of my favorite science fiction stories are ones that assume the banality of the science fiction technology they're talking about. Like, it is within the lifetime of the protagonist that they developed this time travel device. But by the opening of the story, it's like completely mundane. Nobody bats an eye. Yeah. It's, it's totally reshaped how people live. And yet it's just completely taken for granted. And, like, that's such an interesting dynamic to have that I just I just loved it. It's so boring Yeah, what they use it for. In a way, it, it reminded me a bit of, because it also had to do with dinosaurs, I've never seen these movies, but I remember seeing the trailer for the new Jurassic Park movies that came out a couple of years ago. And in that trailer, they were talking about how the dinosaurs weren't selling the park as much anymore because once everyone got over the initial thrill of, oh, hey, we have dinosaurs back again now on this island, people just accepted that as part of life and it lost its luster. And in a way, you see that here with this incredible piece of technology, how fast it's become accepted. I get the sense of that we feel the same way about smartphones and just how, for many of us, and myself included here, it's so hard to remember, like, an age before we all had these little devices in our pocket that we were able to access so much of our life around. But we don't even think about how revolutionary this technology has been because it's just in our pocket all throughout the day, and we're able to use it. So seeing time travel to be that, like that was neat. I really liked how time travel worked in this story because it was kind of a throwback to this old school set of thinking about time travel, which I'll call like the back to the future style, which is, you know, time is one line. There's nothing more than that. So if you go back, it will always be reverberated in the future. It's just like if Marty doesn't get his parents to meet, he and his siblings don't exist. 
And I think these days, because of just how popular the multiverse, like string theory idea of quantum mechanics has become in pop culture, time travel has become all sorts of like, no, it's actually more like old world lines. And time travel is really, you're not going back to the past, you're just going back to a different point in time. And that's spinning off into its whole other thing. And none of this is connected. I think each has its own pros and cons, but I feel like everything I've been seeing in time travel recently has been on that end. So I did appreciate this story for reminding me of like what time travel was for many decades before like the newer style of time travel became more popular. So you had a question though that I want I want your answer on, which was why do you think Swanwick chose this title, Scarso with Tyrannosaur? We have saying the T-Rex, but we also have this Shostakovich piece that is playing at the beginning of the gala that the text makes a reference to. What do you think Swanwick was getting at here between classical music and our dino friends? So I'll point out, right, that a Sherzo is a, um, it's a specific movement, specific type of movement. It's a vigorous, lighter, playful composition. It's actually what plays when the T-Rex is attacked. But that's actually not the movement. That's not the classical piece that opens the uh, the text. It is opened by it is a harpsichord piece, uh, Scarlatti's harpsichord sonatas, which are these brief, complex, refined pieces, and it's specifically giving us that interesting dichotomy where we have these sort of brief, complex pieces, and then outside, oh, we see the hadrosaurus herds kicking up dusk and honking their flattened near musical noises. And like, oh, there's this great dichotomy between basically this sort of almost high art and pure entertainment. And like, hey, that's kind of the perfect thing for this gala, which, hey, the guys inside are listening to this lovely music. And they're able to just observe these dinosaurs running around making noise. And it just showed us, because it's the most interesting thing to me is definitely that dichotomy between the sort of high class establishment that is this gala and the sort of like actual work the foundation is doing looking at these dinosaurs how did you how did you relate to the classical music sam i love shostakovich i'm always happy to see him popping up in my fiction but yeah i think you were right on point with that it's a allusion to here are these magnificent beasts from a bygone age that thanks to this power of technology we can experience and think of like your nature documentaries or planet earth with david Attenborough's voice and as the helicopter shots go over the savannah and you see the lions and the zebras and elephants you see the music which is usually orchestral will swell with it all i can see this all happen in my head i think that's what they're going for as well i think the most obvious comparison actually that i just thought of now as you're talking is Jurassic Park, the film score, the huge symphonic orchestra, the John Williams, like, yeah, you just, you know it by heart. It just comes to you. And like, there's that great, I don't know, in dialogue with the monsters is this classical music. I think it's really cool. I agree. So I want to talk about thinking about the classical music, right? What do you think about the gala? Because I like, I love the specific details of it. Like, the food they're eating. They're, these rich folks brought back in time, they're eating these orders. Playasar wrapped in kelp, beluga smeared over s- sliced nyasar egg, little slivers of roast dodo on toast, a dozen delicacies more. You're just eating these, like, extinct animals as this, like, heightened pleasure because now we have, oh, time travel technology. Let's go use it to eat more delicacies. What did you think of the gala, man? I love, 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 love in fiction. When we get some gala or 
ball or ceremony or anything that allows us, because so many authors love doing this, when we get a huge event together so we can see all of these disgusting rich people, just the way they're depicted in these stories of the absolute most affluent people in society yucking it up with each other in the most all oh, they're wearing those garish outfits. They're talking about like, mm, yes, I I bought myself a new yacht with the money I made from this Tyrannosaurus oil. And this gala was all of that to a T, I think. Funny that... I wish I was there too. I wish I was there. I was able to be with them. Oh, absolutely. I'd be here in a heartbeat to see a T-Rex. I'd be, you know, I just said I'd be like Philippe. It's funny that you mentioned this. <laughs> but yeah, because none of the... Sorry, you said to see the T-Rex, like... None of them are actually watching the animals no. for Philippe. Like, that's the funniest part of it, is that, like, no one actually, like, they're going to this, this uh, gala hosted by this research foundation, and nobody actually cares about the research of the dinosaurs. And Hawkins and the manager, even they are, like, not thrilled by this. They're just like, well, we gotta do this, because these are the people who give us the money to keep doing what we're doing here at the base. There's a lovely detail about Hawkins where they say specifically, like, every table of six... Because there's like each guest gets like six seats to a table and the food. They each also get a paleontologist that's like yep. that just like has to sit with them and talk to them. And it's so interesting because none of the interactions that we see with the dinosaurs are real. Like the herd of animals goes past because they get chased by staff. Yep, everything's staged. We can see the T Rex show because they shoot blood everywhere and it starts and it shows up to kind of attract the blood. I think the point you made about the food was super interesting, considering I just saw today that for King Charles III, I feel uncomfortable every time I say that, for his coronation... I'm, I miss Queen Elizabeth too, man. Ripped to a legend. Gone too soon. She had at least 93 more years than her. I mean... For his coronation, traditionally, lamprey pies are part of the feast. But since lampreys are an endangered species, they will not be on the menu this year. And the point you make is that, like, oh, if we had this technology, you know that coronation would be, like, they'd go back to 1066 to hang out with William the Conqueror, and then they would eat all the lamprey pies they could get their hands on. There's a great bit in an Artemis Fowl story. It's, like, one of the way later ones where, like, the, the group of villains are, like, the extinctionists, and their gimmick is that they find the, like, last individual of endangered species and like cook and eat them <laughs> what a bunch of ass it's it's great i feel like well it's the thing it's like it's uh i do love those explorations of just like the uber super rich words like once you're that rich you just kind of have to do something for fun like you have to just you have to just do something buck wild ah uh, yes the lex luther approach that's right conspiracy buff I spent $75 million on a fake presidential campaign. All just to tick Superman off. Alright, speaking about this though, what do you think the Foundation actually does? Because, like, we know they do research, but, like, why? Like, what research are they doing? Like, this book is so not interested in the actual, or this story, is so not interested in the actual, like, research into the dinosaurs that is being done here. Well, it's a short story, so I don't think it can really afford any of that greater world-building sense. Fair. You know more about this than I do, but perhaps Michael Swanwick was thinking about that so much, which is why he wrote that book that expanded on a lot of like the things discussed here. 
honestly, I think the foundation is just like, it's probably just some conglomerate that is simultaneously in charge of the dinosaur research and the time travel. And they probably have a hand with the time officers who are making the arrests. Like, I'm guessing that this is all, they have a hand in everything. And they have a million limbs out everywhere collecting money as they go and funneling into little projects and everything. And who knows, maybe this research thing that we are privy to in this story is like a drop in the bucket for them. It's like just like, oh yeah, we also run that base. Like, kind of just forgot about that. Which is why maybe they're, they let the manager do what he does because they're like, this is an operation headed up by someone we trust, so we don't have to worry about it or really give them that many resources either. Because yeah, the manager basically doesn't, he makes himself privy to sort of what would be considered like privileged information in terms of the timeline, but he doesn't seem to actually do anything with it except for kind of maintain the sanctity of the time stream. So it's one of those things where it's like, oh, the cops get to break the law. The guy policing the timeline doesn't actually have to follow the actions because he's not really oh, personally no. benefiting from them. Are you suggesting that the cops don't follow their own rules? For shame. I'm suggesting the cops do have legal immunity to a lot of things that non-cops don't get to do. But I think we should talk about Manager Man. Because there's really only two characters in this whole thing. And it's kind of a side side character. It's yep. Philippe, who's a, Philippe slash Hawkins, who's a good sweet boy and dies. And there's the manager. And Sam, what'd you think of him? The way he's presented is a character we've seen in fiction, I think, plenty of times before. He's gruff. He is definitely, like, a weathered fellow, giving off some Han Solo devilish rogue type energy. Like, this is the job he's been assigned to. He used to be a paleontologist, and he kind of misses those days. But hey, the job he does now is a bit more interesting in his view because he's managing a lot of people on the staff, but also managing these rich people at this gala, and has now able to interact with his future self to get the details on what is happening in the future and make plans around it. So, you know, I had a good vibe around him, and then the rape scene happened, which really lowered my views of him significantly. But that's and because you're noting, you're noting that he, the reveal that his future self is the the big boss happens at like the very end. It's it's the last reveal in the whole story. So it's like I thought like this guy's just a piece of shit. Like he's terrible. He's real. He sucks. And like, I'm not sure I even agree with you that you said that he likes his new job more than being a paleontologist, right? I don't actually know why he even is the middle manager, right? It just says he got promoted. But is he promoted because he wanted the promotion or was he promoted because he is inevitably going to become the head of the organization? So he is just following this path that is set before him almost automatically. That's a good question. Despite the fact that he actually has no, he doesn't seem to actually, uh, I guess he, he seems to derive some enjoyment from like manipulating the crowd. There is, at the beginning, some endearing moments with him. Like the, when he's talking to Philippe, he clearly enjoys seeing this kid get the paleontologist spark in him that he had at his age that those were cute scenes that i enjoyed 
The thing about the promotion is, I don't know, you could see that as commentary on people who are at the best at their jobs get promoted where they can no longer use their skills. Think of like the best, I don't know, best engineer on a team being promoted to the lead and now they're spending more time dealing with people than actually like using their skills. I I mean, I can tell you a specific example of my old supervisor last year basically had to take the job because he was the most experienced and skilled teacher in our department. So he became like the head of the department, but he hated running a department as like the DCI. So he just went back to being a teacher this year and there was just a new dedicated department head now. So I think there are definitely those people who, some people who will just like go with the flow and take that position and some people who will just like not. Yeah. The only thing he seems to actually care about is dinos. Yeah, basically. Just like his son. Just like his son. He killed. IT didn't kill him. He let him die. He He, let him die. He maneuvered him into a situation where he died. So, like, I would consider that actually manslaughter, to be honest. Hmm. Or I guess guess the term you could use is, like, neglect. There is definitely a legal term for when you intentionally don't do something that would save someone's life and they die as a result of it. But I don't know what that term actually is. Sure. Or how it would apply in this scenario. I think. I mean, I think he'd be fine because if anyone approached him about it, he would say, like, the, the rule of this world is you can't do anything that would affect the timeline. So he was keeping with that law by letting him die. So I don't think the world, as we are given the information to understand it with, would have any, like, repercussions for him. They'd be like, honestly, they'd probably give him a pat on the back. Can you imagine at the end of the story, they walk in, like, dang, that was your son who died out there, dude? Oh, man. Kudos to you for letting that happen. Here's a I, I wish his. I wish the, the old man had been like, here's your bonus check, by the way. <laughs> that would have been great. He gives him Hawkins' oh last paycheck. Oh, my God. Or... Or it's like Hawkins, no, it's like Hawkins, like the severance pay, or like the, it's like the, you're Hawkins next of kin, <laughs> next so you're to, to get his benefits. That's so fucked up. Oh, that, that would not be the same ending of the story, though. Oh my god, they give him like a settlement as like, and have him sign an NDA so he doesn't sue the company. Uh, well, because the unchanging, it's, the company's run by aliens from the future. Bro. Oh, yeah, I, that, I didn't mention. There's that wild detail. Why don't you... It's, it's just really short. It's just like, the guy just mentions like, most people think that time travel was invented recently and that it was invented by humans, but actually the unchanging invented it. And I did want the reveal to be like, actually, the unchanging are dinosaurs. But that did not happen. We never get a detail on what the unchanging is. I think it's implied in the text they're aliens, but that was just my assumption. I definitely get the sense that they're not human. Could be humans from the future. So, do we want to discuss the scene? Yeah, we got to talk about the rape scene, let's be honest. Because it's yeah. it's the center of his character, right? Because he is a manipulator. And I think we'll bracket this here and say we're going to go into detail about this scene of sexual coercion, I guess is the term. I'm not sure what the exact term would be. But if you want to skip that, skip ahead. We're not going to spend more than like two minutes on this. Yeah. But the interesting thing about it is that I think structurally Swanwick needs there to be a sex scene here. I don't know why he makes it into a rape scene because like there's no reason this guy, like we know he's a manipulator. We know he's a trickster, but like he doesn't need to lie to this woman to no. like pretend to be somebody else. Like you could just have him do something else. And like, 
I, I don't know if it's supposed to, like, I can generously say, like, it's supposed to set up how much of a piece of shit he is for, like, the reveal that, oh, he killed his own son. And it's, it is, it's like, it's a really good touch that the reveal that he sent Hawkins to die happens during this sex scene. But this just, to me, is one of those things that reads, like, this is a text that is reproducing a problematic trope without actually considering it. But saying, oh, yeah, haha, like, this is just a thing that happens in media where oh the main character he's kind of a skeevy guy he's gonna trick this woman to having sex with him isn't that such a such a rake such a rascal but it's like no that's actually sexual assault it's it's bad actually yeah and it turned my stomach when i read it it really upset me and like the story lost me until it came to that later scene where the reveal about philippe pulled me back in yeah i'll just say it would have been so easy to be like because this woman is here to see Hawkins, who is not there because this is his mother, and he's about to get eaten anyway. And it could have just been the manager in that moment, I don't know, use that devilish rogue charm to like have them go from there. But instead, he pretends to be Hawkins and... It's just a scene that could have been rewritten. And the narration easily. is basically like, oh, she's such a slut, she doesn't even notice. Like, that's really That's, what yes. Is. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's the grossest part, to be honest. And it's just, yeah. This character is, like, introduced from the start as definitely a sexual object. Her opening description is the yeah. manager noting that she has the, quote, perfect breasts. So... That worked for me because it's like, this is our POV character and he's a skeevy guy. But when it's like saying like, oh, it, it was just gross. The, the, the yeah. actual sex scene, how she's depicted there. Because it's no longer, it's, it's actually telling you this is what she's doing. It's not about how he's seeing her. And this is the, that's like the one bit of the story that felt like it really was from the year 2000. Where I'm like, oh, this, yep. this does feel old. This does feel dated because like, I think a modern author just would not write that scene that way. Like they would write it with a different level of care is the wrong word but sort of like i don't know a different level of precision almost in terms of what they're doing in that scene do you have any more questions or are we ready to discuss what we think the final choice is oh i think we should talk about the ending a bit but um before i guess before we get to the ending there's one more thing is how would you feel about working for your yourself as an old man Okay, so if, like, my, let's say, let's say my 55-year-old self came in through the door. I feel like the old man is, like, 100 years old. It's oh. definitely implied that he is, like, older than he looks, and he looks old as shit. It's, it's implied that he's, like, like longer than humans can actually live that old. Interesting. That, I think the main character is, like, 55. Yeah, that definitely, I, I, I think that sense. Like, I definitely thought he was, like, up there. That almost makes me wonder, then, if... He, like, the foundation or the unchanging or who, whomever they are is, like, selects him to be, like, the enforcer. What if he's constantly zipping throughout time to clean up the messes? He's the counterforce. And they note that in terms of, like, there's a big enough mess, he's yes. going to show up to fix it. Which is why, like, the main character knows that the issue that he encounters is a small one because the, the old man does not show up for it. Yes, but maybe this... But how would you feel if it was you old man you and your work old man old man sam and oh you gotta work for him god i think it would be very conflict heavy because i think i'm someone who changes and evolves constantly and i'm also someone who 
very much believes in the power of younger generations succeeding over the old and the wheel of time moving forward. I mean, I would just honestly be like, future's now, old man, and would probably not listen to him. I'm the exact opposite. I hate the idea of my fate being sealed by this person's existence, so I would go out of my way to defy him and in an act to like create my own identity that's separate from him. Yeah, two things with that. One, it's interesting how not reflective any characters are about how this time nope. thing actually affects them. Because like you're almost like, yeah, you're set on a track now. Like there's a detail of like, oh, this one young woman, she's like an intern or like low level tech now, but she knows she's going to become the most most prestigious, most advanced researcher in this particular field. And the main character, of course, knows he's becoming the old man at some point. I will say, though, for me, I'm the exact opposite of you, Sam, where I'd be like, oh, man, me and old man, old man Jack would get along so well. We'd be like, oh, me, just like me and the boys. We'd be constantly joking around, hanging out. I just want to give him a hug and have a supportive old man mentor who's also me. Sounds great. Sounds ideal. That, that is interesting when you mentioned, though, quickly about how, like, nothing's reflected. When did Philippe change his name to Hawkins? I think he said when he signed up to work for, when, he's, when he went to, like, paleontologist okay. school, he did that. He, he does mention when he changes his name. Those are two very different names. Philippe is, you know, it, it definitely has French origins. Philippe. It sounds rich, at least from this American perspective. Where it's like Hawkins, I mean, that's the name of the cop from uh, Stranger Things. Like, it's so middle American. It's very different. It's the town from Stranger Things, man. Not the cop. The cop's, the cop's a different guy. Deputy, oh, what's his name? It's not. The town is Hawkins, right? Hang on. Yeah, I'm looking it up too. Oh, the town is Hawkins. That's what the I sheriff said. is Hopper. Dang it. Yeah, I know. A notch another one audience if you're keeping score at home just make sure you put one more in the jack column in terms of just being right about stuff okay cool 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 uh final thing what do you think he did with the memo what would you do with the memo because like what he did almost doesn't matter it's intentionally ambiguous. Sure. he didn't do anything with it because the story ends yes what would you have done but that's the best part like i said is talking with other people to see like what they think happened. Because it also, let's be honest, reveals a lot more about yourself as well. We should probably remind the audience of what the memos were. Because yes. that was in the that was in like the summary a while ago. Explain. The memos, he's got two in front of him. The first one basically is written by the old man. He sends it back to himself, his former self to basically let the story play out as it played out. Other memo would basically prevent this storyline from happening, would prevent Philippe slash Hawkins from ever being conceived, and would also basically destroy the research center, the foundation, and perhaps even time travel as a system. By basically constantly like doing this huge overwrite of the past. So Sam, what would you do? Would you keep things as they are? Would you burn it all down? You know what my answer to this is going to be. Yes, Sam, I do know who you are. He's just been through a traumatic experience. He's realized what time travel has led to and the chaos and destruction it can cause. And now his older self is coming in and telling him, there's nothing you can do. You just have to let it all be. 
Oh, we're pulling the pin on this grenade. We are erasing it all. We are pouring on the gasoline and throwing the match on this fire. I feel like, from my point of view, with this story, this is a guy realizing throughout the course of these 12 hours or so, all of these thoughts that he's had in the back of the head about this technology and all the problems and ramifications that it causes through its use. And now he has been personally deeply affected by an incredibly scarring opportunity. Not that he didn't deserve it, because, reminder, he is a rapist. But I think the ending is him coming to terms with this cannot be allowed to happen again. And also, fuck the power. (laughs) Just don't let your older self win. Keep fighting. Blow it all up. Sam, I just want to tell you something. Tell me. God hands you a miracle. You don't throw it back in his face. That's what the old man says, right? Time travel is, if you're a paleontologist, right? If you're that kid who's standing in front of the mosaic, looking at these drawings of dinosaurs and saying, by God, by God, I wish more than anything in the world that I could see these in flesh and blood for real. Time travel is a miracle, man. I, I'm a lover of history, not that far back, but if you're telling me, like, oh, we've got this technology that would basically give you the opportunity to go back in time and talk to Abraham Lincoln you or Abraham Lincoln. Herman Melville. Herman, or... of all the people to go back in time, you're going to talk to Herman Melville. I like Melville. I, I, who, who would, okay, who would you go back in time to? I don't, I, I you know what I speak, Sam? I speak English, man. I can't go back in time and talk to, like, I don't know. Confucius. Lenin. Or whatever. I talk to good old Americans. Like Frederick Douglass. Like W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois. But, okay. And you're telling me the only thing I have to give up is my firstborn son? (laughs) I mean, brother, that's a square deal. Also, that kid's dead either way. True. He is... the, the old man has a point. The, the old man has a point where he says, hey, that kid, that kid who you let die had 24 years of life. 24 good years. He followed his passion. He saw the dinosaurs. Think about the joy Philippe had in that earlier part. You're going to rip that away from him. For what? Because you feel a little sad that he died too young. You're going to take away the only time he ever had because of your feelings. I don't know. I would, I would, of course, send the other memo back. An audience, I'll leave you at home to decide who's right and who's wrong. Yes, I will give you the win of that the argument of Philippe is dead either way. Either he doesn't exist at all or he gets the 24 years. I know, like, the 24 years is better than zero. So that may be able to sway me in the other direction, but... Embrace the change. Also, the idea <laughs> the idea that you have to sacrifice your firstborn son, to me, immediately made me think that Ramses II and all the Egyptians immediately gained access to time travel at the end of Exodus. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh no, Moses escaped. We Let's go back in time and see the dinosaurs now. Oh man, they, they cut that chapter out of the Bible where the... Egyptians show up in uh, in Canaan on a bunch of dinosaurs, and Moses has to fight them with his uh, his magic again. If you had just seen God part the Red Sea and people run through it, 
Time traveling following that up would not be the most wild thing to occur next. Ramses is like, we can't follow him on foot. Get the pterodactyls. Well, don't tell the creationist bobbers about that. Before we wrap up, I should quickly mention that this book makes a one-sentence reference to creationist bombers, i.e. evangelical terrorists that are bombing time travel stations because going back in time to dinosaurs disproves that the Earth is like 6,000 years old or something. Great touch. I hope that in the full novel that is expanded upon more. I agree. Let's close with some quotes. Why don't you go first while I pull mine up? I actually am going to have two. I'm going to start with the long one and I'm going to do the short one. Because there's a, there's a, I don't want to end on such a sour note. So I'm going to do this. The first one is from after he's realized what's going on with Philippe and he's drafting his sort of response to it. A bleak, blank time later, I set to work drawing timelines in the holographic workspace above my desk. Simple double loop for Hawkins slash Philippe. A rather more complex figure for myself. Then I factored in the TSOs, the waiters, the paleontologists, the musicians, the workmen who built the station in the first place and would salvage its fixtures when we were done with it. Maybe a hundred representative individuals in all. When I was done, I had a three-dimensional representation of Hilltop Station as a node of intersecting lives and time. It was one hell of a complex figure. It looked like a Gordian knot. Then I started crafting a memo back to my younger self. A carbon-steel, razor-edged, damascene sword of a memo. One that would slice Hilltop Station into a thousand spasming, paradoxical fragments. Hire him, fire her. Strand a hundred young scientists, all fit and capable of breeding, a million years B.C. Oh, and don't father any children. It would bring our sponsors down on us like so many angry hornets. The unchanging would yank time travel out of human hands, retroactively. Everything connected to it would be looped out of reality and into the disintegrative medium of quantum uncertainty. Hilltop Station would dissolve into the realm of might-have-been. The research and findings of thousands of dedicated scientists would vanish from human knowledge. My son would never have been conceived or born or callously sent to an unnecessary death. Everything I had spent my life working to accomplish would be undone. It sounded good to me. It tells you everything you need to know about the character right there. Oh, Sam, I'm sorry. What, what's, your, what's your quotable quote, my boy? My quote is from the very end. It's the last couple of paragraphs when we are left with the choice that defines the story. I picked up the memo, glanced at its contents. It was the one I'd received yesterday. Hawkins was attacked and killed by Satan shortly after local midnight tonight, I quoted. Take all necessary measures to control gossip. Overcome with loathing, I said, this is exactly why I'm going to bust up this whole filthy system. You think I want to become the kind of man who can send his own son off to die? You think I want to become you? That hit home. For a long time, the old man did not speak. Listen, he said at last. You remember that day in the Peabody? You know I do. I stood there in front of that mural wishing with all my heart, all your heart, that I could see real living dinosaur. But even then, even as an eight-year-old, I knew it wasn't going to happen. 
Some things can never be. I said nothing. God hands you a miracle, he said. Don't throw it back at his face. Then he left. I remained. It was my call. Two possible futures lay side by side on my desk, and I could select either one. The universe is inherently unstable in every instant. If paradoxes were impossible, nobody would waste their energy preventing them. The old man was trusting me to weigh all relevant factors, make the right decision, and live with the consequences. It was the cruelest thing he had ever done to me. Thinking of cruelty reminded me of the old man's eyes. Eyes so deep he could drown in them. Eyes so dark you couldn't tell how many corpses already lay submerged within them. All those years working with him, I still couldn't tell if those were the eyes of a saint or of the most evil man in the world. There were two memos in front of me. I reached for one, hesitated, withdrew my hand. Suddenly the choice didn't seem so easy. The night was preternaturally still. It was as if all the world was holding its breath, waiting for me to make my decision. I reached out for the memos. I chose one. Mm. What I actually love about that there and that we didn't talk about is the he reaches out for one and hesitates and that adds another layer to it. So we don't know if he made a choice and then actually thought about it for another second and reversed it or he made the choice, hesitated, and then like reconfirmed that this was the right one. So there's even another layer on top of it all, which I think is great stuff to add to the whole ending conversation that you can have with your friends folks it's a dense dense story and sam are there any related recommendations we've got for this well actually i've got one which is listen to the shostakovich string quintet that the actual this reference to the text it's a really really good piece and i recommend it yeah you got any more sam so i was thinking about some good time travel media ones that this story made me think specifically of outside the double feature that I think you could do for this uh, story, which is Jurassic Park and Back to the Future. I am going to recommend Looper. It is a 2012 film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis and Emily Blunt as well about a hitman who is gangs have a contract down on put a time travel collar on them to send them back to the past where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character executes them and we get to see a really cool system of time travel in this film it really holds itself to the rules of time travel that it lays out and then the conflict comes when the he waits in the same spot he always does for the target to suddenly snap into reality to be executed when he sees that the target today is an older version of himself and i'm going to leave it there for you so you should watch the film yourself it's pretty great the other piece I'm going to recommend, just because it was on my mind, is the incredibly flawed video game, 2013 Bioshock Infinite. That game is so interesting, because at the time it came out, it was hailed as the culminating piece of the Bioshock trilogy, which at the time was lauded as like the true art of video game. But it's got a lot of messy plot elements in it and gameplay, and I think it's not aged well at all or even aged that well at the time but if you're interested in time travel and these themes of characters connecting with each other across time and meeting each other 
with years of experience and older and future selves. It is worth playing for some of that if you're really into that. Or even just going on YouTube and watching any of the scenes with the Lutes twins because they are the best part of that. That does it for my recommendations. Over to you, Jack. Yep, I've got one more recommendation. A trilogy of blog posts by the excellent, excellent RPG OSR blogger Arnold K. on his blog uh, Goblin Punch from 2012 and 2013. Blog posts are after his burial and before his death, uh, pseudo-imaginary dinosaur, and uh, dinosaur clerics a new class. Specifically after his burial and before his death, because all three of these are... Um, blog posts about uh, the Tyrannosaur, uh, what's his name actually, Tyrogenon Ferox, the Paradox Lord of the Infinite Boneyard, who is a dead dinosaur whose consciousness is constantly time-traveling and influencing the century, like the Museum of Natural History, and is sending his his servants and his his allies all over the world and all over the time stream. It's just fascinating to look at this idea of time travel and dinosaurs and how you can sort of if you're a role-playing gamer, you can use it in your role-playing games, and if you're, or if you're just interested in interesting concepts, interesting stories, you can just read it for those. But I think Arnold K is a really interesting writer, and I think this is one of his best ideas. Is uh, specifically after his burial and before his death. And that's about all I had to say. So, uh, Sam, what are we doing for the next episode? So we are going back in time as well, traveling a few more decades down the timeline to. 1973, Tricky Dick was president, and Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth won the short story award, Hugo, with their story, The Meeting. So that will be our next episode. Very excited to see what the sci-fi fantasy scene was like in the 70s. Until then, you can find me streaming at twitch.tv slash Johnson and also at Johnson on Twitter. Jack, where can folks find you? Don't. You can find me. Until then, everyone, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you and God bless our troops. If an older version of you comes walking through the door with advice on what to do, remember, they're lying. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to Every Hugo Ever. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review on a podcasting app of your choice, wherever you listen to it. Make that rating as high as possible, maybe seven stars. You can also support us on Ko-Fi through a link in the episode description. Follow us on Twitter at Every Hugo Ever for show updates and other fun. Send us questions, comments, and your own reviews, our reviews, at everyhugoever at gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with the Hugo Awards or with WorldCon. See you next time. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.